This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Time. It's a tricky thing, especially if you believe that our calendar is wrong and we should actually be living in the 1700s. So clear your schedule and get ready to learn more about the phantom dark ages in these fantastic episodes from Conspiracy Theories. Every Wednesday, discover the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events, Listen to Conspiracy Theories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, enjoy. At 11.59 p.m. on December 31st, 1999, the world counted down the final seconds of a millennium. They sat glued to their television sets, anxiously waiting for the Times Square ball to drop. Some watched from the comfort of their couches, others from bars, some from unmarked fallout shelters, fearing the Y2K bug and the end of days. But when midnight struck, there was no apocalypse, only cause for celebration. 2000 was a milestone, a year that at one time had just been a setting for science fiction, a distant future that had seemed impossibly far away. The new millennium signified a fresh start, a passage into the future, even. Technology was becoming more integrated into everyday life. The world was growing smaller and smaller as more and more people gained access to instantaneous communication. The internet was becoming an endless font of information. Search engines gave users millions of results in minutes. 2000 seemed like the dawn of an era marked by hope, and not long after midnight, the Y2K bug became a distant memory, a superstition. But what if those millennial celebrants were being lied to? What if the people who make the information and keep the records didn't want them to know the truth? Like the fact that we might actually be living in the year 1723. And maybe we should keep our fallout shelters stocked.
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on the Phantom Dark Ages, otherwise known as the Phantom Time Hypothesis, a theory that suggests that sometime in humanity's history, nearly 300 years were added to our calendar, 300 years that never happened. This week, we'll explore the official story that our calendar is correct and we're not living in the 1700s. We'll travel back in time to explore the years in question, 614 to 911 CE. We'll examine why records from the Dark Ages remain scarce and discuss some historical precedents for changing calendars. We'll also take a look at some famous figures who we believe lived during the years in question, like the legendary King Charlemagne. Next week, we'll dive into the details of the Phantom Dark Ages conspiracy, spearheaded by German historical revisionist Heribert Ehrlich. Ehrlich and his supporters believe that the years 614 to 911 CE never happened. According to them, everything we think happened over the course of those three centuries was fabricated and King Charlemagne never actually existed. In 1989, while working at CERN, computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee created a hypermedia initiative that would allow the world to share information on an unprecedented scale. This project became known as the World Wide Web. Since then, humanity has been able to record, send, and receive information almost instantaneously. People can cross-check and reference facts from a bottomless database that has only grown exponentially in the past three decades. So in a world where information is king and answers are only a Google search away, it's difficult to conceive how a few powerful men could have simply inserted 297 years into a calendar without anyone noticing. But a thousand years ago, it was more possible than you'd think. In order to wrap our heads around the prospect, we'll have to travel back to the Dark Ages, a time before Siri or Alexa, when hard facts were scarce and access to knowledge had gone dark. Prior to 476 CE, many believed that the Western Roman Empire was too big to fail. But it was actually Rome's size that had become its biggest problem. As the empire expanded, it exhausted its resources. Newly conquered lands meant more people to manage, which required restructuring. 
but without proper resources or easy long-distance communication, they weren't able to make the changes they needed in a timely fashion. In 285 CE, Emperor Diocletian separated the land into two parts, an eastern and western division. The east established a new capital in the city of Constantinople, or modern-day Istanbul, and thrived. The West, however, continued to struggle. Civil wars erupted. Many rulers died at the hands of their successors, who were hungry to take their seat at the table. These conflicts created financial strain. Inflation led to impoverishment, creating an even larger wealth gap than before. Agricultural production declined, and as a result, Roman citizens began to starve. Amongst the chaos, the rise of Christianity. Popes and other religious leaders infiltrated the government, further complicating an already corrupt system. But the most critical blow to the Western Roman Empire was the invasion of barbarian tribes. While the term barbarian often has a negative connotation, in this case, it simply means members of a culture who lived outside of what was then considered civilization. The moment these supposedly primitive people saw weakness, they struck. In 476 CE, barbarian leader Flavius Odoacer attacked the Western Roman Empire. He overthrew the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, and delivered a final gut-wrenching blow to imperial civilization. And when the Western Empire toppled, its people were left to fend for themselves. Without the stability and protection of the empire, life in Western Europe became more uncertain. Citizens feared further invasions, so they began pledging their loyalty to lords and landowners. In exchange for work, they would receive shelter, food, and protection. This trade-off gave birth to the social system known as feudalism. But in this new restructuring, there was no longer a unified government which meant there was no single branch keeping detailed records of the times. Current events were tracked via word of mouth instead of on the page. Only the wealthy could afford an education, and most of the world was in dire poverty. Literacy rates declined. At some points, less than 5% of all Europeans knew how to read. Minimal information was written down from 500 CE to the revival of the Western Roman Empire around 1000 CE. The lack of material evidence from this era led to the name the Dark Ages. One group saw the Dark Ages as an opportunity, a time to step into the power vacuum and seize dominance. The Catholic Church became one of the most influential social and political structures in Europe and in no small part because people were suffering. They turned to religion for comfort and hope. Often, people would attend services multiple times a day, but in turn, they were required to give 10% of their annual income to the local parish. This tax was known as a tithe, and it allegedly helped cleanse the parishioner of their sins. If it wasn't paid, it meant excommunication, being banned from the church. Excommunicates were social lepers. So although most ordinary people could barely feed themselves, they paid. 
and the Catholic Church quickly became one of the wealthiest institutions in Europe, and tax-exempt, we should add. People flocked to become priests, monks, or nuns, thanks to the privilege these positions offered. In most cases, members of the clergy and nobility were the only ones who could afford to learn to read and write. Which meant the wealthy were the only ones able to keep records of the times. And as a result, they became the ones with the power to rewrite history as they saw fit, no matter what was real or true. Commoners lacked the ability, or frankly the desire, to question anything. Interestingly, there is proof of false documentation from this time. When historians looked back on the records they could recover from the Middle Ages, they found thousands of pieces that seemed to be forged. Take, for example, the document titled The Donation of Constantine from the 8th century. The document was thought to be written by a Greek or Roman clergyman pretending to be Constantine the Great. The record stated that Constantine was cured of leprosy by Pope Sylvester I and gifted his land and power to the Pope as a sign of his gratitude. But the Vatican refused the offering as a sign of the Church's selflessness. Historians believe that this falsified document was used in an effort to coerce the King of the Franks into giving land to the Church around 757 CE. The common folk were largely blind to the fact that the church was rewriting their history and manipulating leaders. In fact, people in the Middle Ages were generally unaware of a lot of things. They were more focused on other, more important details, like survival. Life expectancy was about 33 years at the time. 50% of children were expected to die before they turned five, 90% of citizens struggled to meet their most basic needs – food, drink, shelter, warmth, and sleep. As such, many couldn't care less about irrelevant details, like what week it was. If they had questions about the date, they would often just turn to a priest. If it was a holiday, then they were given a day of rest. While life was dramatically different during the Middle Ages, it was also less complex driven by routine and survival instinct. In a very real sense, the church acted as the World Wide Web, claiming to have all the answers to people's questions. Which gave the upper class an opportunity to take advantage of its citizens. The church stoked fear with tales of Satan, demons, and the fires of hell. They used that fear to incentivize worshipers to hand over money to save their immortal souls. And then, behind closed doors, they used that money to advance their agendas. Agendas like backing leaders who promised to conquer new lands for Christianity. Every new convert meant a new income stream, direct to the church's treasury. And as the alliance between church and state grew stronger, the worse the manipulation became. In fact, the duo may have had just enough power to casually insert three centuries into the calendar without anyone noticing. Coming up, we'll meet Emperor Otto III, the three-year-old king. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 476 CE, the Western Roman Empire crumbled. The survivors of this once unified and secured European nation were now scrambling to stay alive. 90% of the population was living in poverty as serfs or slaves. Securing food, shelter, and safety became their only concern. Literacy was reserved for the rich and powerful, and the only people with the tools to keep records of the time were leaders in the Catholic Church. As such, many turned to papal leaders for answers, guidance, and more importantly, hope. But under the new decentralized feudal system, hope was hard to come by. It would be another three centuries of unrest before a ruler came along who tried to unify Europe again. Some knew him as Charles the Great. Others knew him as the leader of the Germanic tribes, the Franks and the Lombards. Most people today remember him from history class as Charlemagne. And according to generally accepted history, by the year 800 CE, Charlemagne became the world's first holy Roman emperor. Charlemagne's father, Pepin III, was the founder of the Frankish Empire known as the Carolingian dynasty. The Franks were one of the largest barbarian kingdoms and occupied modern-day France, Belgium, and Germany. And after his father's death in 768 CE, 26-year-old Charlemagne decided to keep expanding his empire. At the same time, he was trying to siphon power from the Pope by positioning himself as the head of the church. His end goal? Convert all Europeans to Christianity and be the absolute authority of said religion. He saw the authority and wealth the church had amassed in the name of religion, but instead of working with the institution, he decided he would become it. In 772, he entered the province of Saxony in today's northern Germany with the intention of converting its people from paganism to Christianity, and he planned on doing so by force. The crusade lasted for three decades and is now known as the Saxon Wars. Charlemagne worked tirelessly to unite all of the Germanic people into his kingdom. He was able to conquer the tribe known as the Lombards in modern-day Italy, as well as the Avars who occupied today's Hungary and Austria. Eventually, Charlemagne established a new government north of the Alps. Records of Charlemagne, written primarily by his allies in the Catholic Church, painted him as a hero, a man who shared power by creating new government positions and delegating land and authority to others. He even allowed the people he conquered to keep some of their old laws and traditions. By some accounts, he was single-handedly responsible for igniting the Carolingian Renaissance. Charlemagne was sympathetic to the lower class and wanted to elevate their standards of living. He did his best to educate his people by making more resources available to the poor. 
He also preserved existing knowledge by adapting ancient texts for future generations, despite not being able to read or write himself. When Charlemagne died in 814 CE at the age of 71, his empire included much of Western Europe, but not everyone was sorry to see him go. Some viewed Charlemagne as a heroic, unselfish, evangelical leader, but many others saw him as a tyrant, a leader who'd committed countless atrocities and slaughtered thousands of innocents. Those who refused to be baptized or follow Christian practices were put to death as part of Charlemagne's efforts to violently force his faith upon the people of Europe. In life, Charlemagne had planted the seeds of rebellion. After his death, the Carolingian Empire weakened and was divided into three parts, each ruled by one of his grandsons. As a result, it suffered. One of the reasons his empire had been so successful was because it was unified under a single leader. By the end of the 800s, the Carolingian dynasty collapsed. Then, in 919, Duke Henry the Fowler was elected king by his fellow German dukes. He bore a son who would come to be known as Otto I, thus beginning the reign of the Ottonian dynasty. Otto I grew up hearing the courageous stories of Charlemagne. His predecessor quickly became his hero. When Otto I took the throne in 936 CE, he made sure he was crowned, like Charlemagne, in the capital of Aachen. But Otto was paranoid about losing his family's claim to the throne. So he made his six-year-old son, Otto II, the joint ruler of Germany. And he hired a monk named Gerbert of Aurillac to be young Otto II's tutor. Six years later, 12-year-old Otto II became a full co-emperor. It was a stroke of genius. The more time people spent answering to his son while Otto I still held control, the less likely someone else might usurp his power when Otto eventually died. It worked as anticipated. When Otto I died of fever in 973, 18-year-old Otto II was given full reign over the empire without argument. He worked tirelessly to expand upon his father's legacy by strengthening their hold over what would become modern-day Germany. However, Otto II's occupancy of the throne was also cut short. When he unexpectedly died of malaria at age 28, only 10 years into his reign, and his successor would be the one to plunge the empire into political chaos. Why? Because the new king of Germany was his three-year-old son, Otto III, one of the youngest ruling monarchs in history. The three-year-old king of Germany followed in the footsteps of his father. He too was coronated in Aachen, Germany on Christmas morning in 983 the same date that legendary ruler Charlemagne had been crowned Holy Roman Emperor exactly 183 years prior. And as he grew up, he was tutored by the same monk who educated his father, Gerbert of Ariac. But unlike his father, Otto III wasn't much of a king. In fact, during his childhood, his mother, Theophano, was the true leader. Theophano made all executive decisions behind the role of regent. At the time in Western Europe, a woman leading a country was unheard of. 
She raised Otto III to understand the power that everyone in his family held. He knew he had the potential to change his fate and that of his people. He began fulfilling his destiny at the young age of 14. The boy focused on resurrecting the Roman Empire by reintroducing Christianity throughout his land. He saw an opportunity to seize even more power after the death of Pope John XV in 996. The teenage king decided he would appoint his 24-year-old cousin as the new pope, Pope Gregory V. And Gregory became Otto III's most powerful pawn. It seems that the two may have had an agreement, because only 18 days after his appointment in May 996, Gregory V returned the favor by crowning Otto III the new Holy Roman Emperor. Symbolically, he now held the authority of the rulers who had gone before him. As the years passed, the blend of politics and religion in Otto III's regime became more complex. He became obsessed with the idea of Christian millenarianism, a belief centered around a thousand-year period referenced in the Book of Revelation. Many believe that 1000 CE was the year that Christ would return to Earth and establish a utopian kingdom. So when Gregory V died in the year 999, the 19-year-old king believed the next pope would be one of the most important of all time. He appointed an ally who could help him shore up power, his confidant and tutor, Gerbert of Aurillac, who was named Pope Sylvester II. At the height of his dominance, Otto III was ruling over most of modern Germany, northern Italy, and eastern France. And with Pope Sylvester II overseeing the Vatican, the two were able to amplify their reach. According to Emmett Scott's book, A Guide to the Phantom Dark Age, the two men decided to strengthen the Christian faith by adopting the A.D. or Anno Domini dating system. Anno Domini, often mistakenly translated as after death, actually means the year of the Lord. Prior to that, they'd been using the Roman Julian calendar, but the use of Anno Domini allowed them to Christianize timekeeping. But this was only phase one of their plan. There is speculation that a meeting took place between Pope Sylvester II, Otto III, and possibly Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII around 999 CE. What exactly happened between the three is unclear. But most scholars assume that the trio met up to strategize. Otto III and Pope Sylvester II were eager to fulfill the prophecy of Christian millenarianism, and the new era would begin the very next year. But they feared God might need a little assistance to initiate the end times, so they decided to help push up his schedule. In essence, they were plotting to destroy the world. Coming up, Otto III journeys into Charlemagne's tomb, hoping to trigger the end times. Now, back to the story. In 999 CE, Holy Roman Emperor Otto III appointed his mentor as the new pope, Pope Sylvester II. The two shared dreams of reviving the fallen Roman Empire and making it more powerful than it had ever been, 
even at its peak around 100 CE. And they do that by waging a religious war. Some interpretations of the gospel contended that Jesus Christ would return shortly after his acceptance in all nations. He would gather the just, fight off hostile invaders, and create a utopian kingdom. This concept is known as Christian millenarianism, and Otto III wanted to be the one who brought Jesus back. Maybe he could even be venerated as Christ himself. In the year 1000 CE, Otto III encouraged the dissemination of stories about his family's idol, Emperor Charlemagne. The long-deceased king quickly became a legend throughout the new empire. That year, Otto made a pilgrimage to the German city of Aachen to visit Charlemagne's burial site. But when he arrived at St. Mary's Chapel, he was uncertain exactly where the tomb was located. The information had been lost to time. Otto demanded that the chapel's stone floor be removed so he could search for the grave. According to monks studying at the monastery of Novaleza, after some searching, Otto III found the entrance. He descended into the tomb with three escorts, two bishops and a man named Otto of Lomelo. The group was overwhelmed by a distinct and putrid smell emanating off of the decomposed body of Charlemagne. The great emperor was sitting upright on a golden chair as if he'd never left his throne. The body held an ornate scepter while his fingernails had grown through the seams of his glove. Atop his head sat a beautiful gold crown, as perfect as the last day he'd reigned. The men knelt before the warrior king. Charlemagne's corpse was relatively intact aside from the tip of his nose. Otto placed a small sheet of gold over the missing cartilage, covered the body in white robes, and trimmed his nails, keeping some clippings as a token of his journey. He also took a tooth and replaced it with a golden cap. One of Otto's accomplices, Bishop Tietmar of Merseborg, claimed that Otto went on to treasure the souvenirs he had taken from the crypt that day. But they must have been cold comfort, as he didn't miraculously become Charlemagne like he'd hoped. In fact, many common folk felt that Otto's decision to enter Charlemagne's tomb had been a desecration. They believed that one day, God would take vengeance on the Holy Roman Emperor. And perhaps he did just that, because two years after Otto breached his hero's tomb, he suffered from a sudden and deadly fever. Otto III died in January 1002 CE at the young age of 21. But that's just one version of the story. According to Bishop Tietmar, Otto descended into the crypt that afternoon alone meaning he could have taken the tooth from any dead body buried within the catacomb. If no one else saw Charlemagne's cadaver, then Otto III might have made up the entire story. And perhaps that wasn't all that Otto III made up. He was obsessed with ushering in Christ's millennial kingdom in 1000 CE, obsessed enough to break into a lost ruler's grave, Obsessed enough, maybe, to fudge the dates if it didn't look like he'd actually still be ruling in the new millennium. Because according to some theorists, the year 1000 was still centuries away during Otto III's reign. 
It's possible that when he met up with Pope Sylvester II and Constantine VII, they decided to fast forward the calendar to the year 1000 CE. In order to fully wrap our heads around the phantom dark ages, we must first gain a better understanding of how those years between 614 to 911 CE could have been inserted into our modern day calendar and whether there's a precedent for such actions. So let's start at the beginning. In 2004, the National Trust for Scotland excavated the world's oldest calendar, dating back to the year 8000 BCE, believed to have been created by an ancient hunter-gatherer society in Scotland. This calendar marked the passage of time via lunar phases. About 4 to 5000 years later, around the 3rd to 2nd millennium BCE, Egypt and Mesopotamia discovered their own ways to calculate months and years and started documenting them. To the north of Egypt, the Hebrew calendar dates back to their traditional beginning of creation, 3761 BCE, so around the same time. They began each month at the start of a new moon. Meanwhile, in 2000 BCE, the nearby Babylonians introduced the concept of the zodiac. A new month began whenever a crescent moon was spotted. Then there's the Ethiopian calendar, which consists of 13 months, with the final one having only five days, six if it's a leap year. Irregularities like this were often necessary as the solar and lunar calendars don't always line up neatly. Just before the Roman Empire came to power, general and politician Julius Caesar noticed that the Roman calendar was three months ahead of the solar calendar. He took it upon himself to correct this error with the help of a famed Greek astronomer named Sosigenes. Using the Egyptian calendar for inspiration, they decided the solar year was 365 and a quarter days. They divided the year into 12 months, with a leap year every four years. If this all sounds familiar, it's because it's the system our modern-day calendar is based on. It's known as the Julian calendar. The problem was, when Julius Caesar implemented his calendar on January 1st, 45 BCE, it didn't line up correctly with the tropical year. Now, it's not important to know what a tropical year is or why things didn't line up. What's important is this. The calendar was 11 minutes short every year, adding up to 18 hours every century or an entire day every 128 years. It's pretty incredible to think our ancient ancestors figured out these details with the limited resources they had. But unfortunately, Caesar hadn't accurately accounted for those missing 11 minutes, which inevitably threw the calendar out of sync. And it wasn't until over 1600 years later, in 1582 CE, that the head of the Catholic Church, Pope Gregory XIII, decided the problem had gotten out of control. The Pope was annoyed that the equinox was scheduled to fall on March 11th, according to the Julian calendar. Yet Easter was traditionally celebrated on March 21st. So in an effort to fix this frustrating error, the Pope decided to erase 10 extra days that had accumulated since the start of the Julian calendar. So October 4th, 1582 came to a close and people woke the next morning on October 15th, 1582. 
In the blink of an eye, Pope Gregory XIII had erased 10 days. Instead of the 5th, it was the 15th. The Gregorian calendar and the Julian calendar followed the exact same format, which included 12 months, 365 days, and that leap year every four years. But there was one key difference. The Gregorian calendar made up for the sets of 11 missing minutes by inserting a leap year every four years, except when the century year is not divisible by 400, which means there are some periods of time where we go eight years between leap years instead of the usual four. To put it simply, while the year 2400 will be a leap year, the years 1800, 1900, 2100, and 2200 were not and will not be leap years because they cannot be evenly divided by 400. So, for those of us lucky enough to live until the year 2104, we'll get to see that period of eight years. And somehow, this mind-bending rule helped Pope Gregory XIII readjust the calendar, setting it back on its proper course. But the thing was, Pope Gregory XIII had made a different mistake. That 11-minute gap that had accumulated over the years didn't add up to a discrepancy of 10 days. Instead, it added up to 13. Which was what made conspiracy theorists suspicious. For some reason, Pope Gregory XIII's math seemed to indicate he was calculating the discrepancy between 45 BCE and 1282 CE, not 45 BCE and 1582 CE, a 300-year difference. But that doesn't mean there's evidence of a conspiracy. Any calendar is, at its core, strictly subjective. The first calendar didn't begin with the Big Bang, which ultimately means the measurements are all theoretical. In fact, as we've seen, they're often determined by just a couple powerful men. Men who have the ability to snap their fingers and make 10 days in October disappear. Which brings us to the question, was Pope Gregory XIII completely unaware that he'd made a simple mathematical error? Or was there something more nefarious happening behind the scenes? This is the million-dollar question behind Harry Bear Elix's phantom time hypothesis. Around 1986, the German systems analyst and historical revisionist picked up on this three-day discrepancy and was certain it wasn't just a mistake. He wondered if Pope Gregory XIII could have, instead, been compensating for a date-editing conspiracy that had begun in the Catholic Church centuries earlier. And this got Elix's gears turning. He honed in on the Dark Ages and noticed that there was one particular period of time devoid of detailed records and archaeological evidence. 614 to 911 CE, the time from before the start of Charlemagne's rule up until the rise of the Ottonian Empire which led him to his number one suspect, Holy Roman Emperor Otto III. He believed that Pope Sylvester II, Otto III, and possibly Constantine VII had met in secret and decided to move themselves from the 7th century into the new millennium. They were the ones to create this blackout in history. And on top of that, 
Pope Gregory XIII helped them to cover up this conspiracy when he converted the calendar over to the one we use today. Soon enough, Elick's theory began gaining traction. One fellow German engineer and historian, Dr. Hans Ulrich Niemitz, joined Elick on his quest to prove that his hypothesis was actually the truth. Next week, we will take a look at our single conspiracy led by Elick and Niemitz that the teenage Holy Roman Emperor Otto III and his cohort, Pope Sylvester II, added three centuries to the calendar. They created a giant hole in history, which was then filled with a fictionalized cast of characters, one of them being the great Carolingian emperor known as Charlemagne. We'll explore the absence of archaeological evidence from 614 to 911 CE and determine if there's any proof that historical events from this period never happened. Then we'll examine Elick's suspicion that Charlemagne is a completely fictionalized character. Otto III crafted Charlemagne into an ideal, a Christ-like figure that could unify the world. Finally, we'll see if there's a scientific way to test Niemitz and Elick's claims. Can measuring tree rings or tracking astronomical events prove that we really are living in the 1700s? Perhaps we did in fact celebrate our passage into the millennium prematurely. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>